Welcome back to the Ransomed Heart Podcast, friends. You're actually jumping into part two of a conversation on the five agreements that we think are doing a lot of harm among millennials. And this is actually a and Sons podcast that Sam and Blaine and I did for the and Sons uh, channel that we do for young men. And it's like Inception podcast. It's a podcast <laughs> within a podcast. You're welcome, everybody. Yeah, yeah, and this one, this one's kind of a doozy. We we move into a couple of the more beefier ones here. Yeah, I think for our audience, it's not going to be um, as dangerous of waters, but we did want to be really careful as we waded into these deeper agreements that are having cultural effects because within our context, these are things that we're aware of that are like really life-giving and will be really hopeful as people begin to identify them and break away from these things that are false realities. Mm -hmm. Outside of our context, you know, that isn't that helpful because you need to be on a journey with this. So that's why you're going to hear some interesting tiptoeing around some of the things. Yeah, we're working on eggshells here, but there's a reason for that culturally. Cultural eggshells, man. Yeah. Anyway, part two of five agreements that are killing millennials. We talked through last week what an agreement is, how it influences a person, and then we talked about doubt. We talked about offense but we've got three more in front of us this week, so. And the next two are touchy. The next two, we we are now entering into the realm of offense. And you just need to know, gang, at least our hearts in this. The reason we wrote the article, published it, the reason that we're doing the two-part series here is we actually believe that these agreements are doing harm. We think that they're harming people that we love and and so this is offered in in hopes of restoration and hope itself and, and a recovery of meaning and purpose and identity and direction and personal restoration and cultural restoration so that's at least the spirit in which this is offered because as we get as we get into number 3 I've had conversations about this already even this week And I've wanted to have this conversation for a long time in front of and for millennials. The agreement uh, number three that I named in the article is social justice or just justice is the best expression of the gospel right now. Because we live in a culture of offense, (laughs) because doubt has become the millennial membership card, you're still left with a whole company of sincere lovers of Jesus saying, well, well, now what do we do? Like, how, how do we win a hearing for the gospel? How do we demonstrate the love of God to a hurting world? And therefore, it's justice. It's, it's let's get involved in vulnerable children and trafficked women and all of the beautiful and necessary causes that millennials have thrown themselves into. So, how could that be wrong? How could that why why would I even name that as an agreement? Right. I mean, it sure seems true, not like a false thing. Like that's and that's a pretty good barometer for agreements is when you go, that's not an agreement, that's just the way <laughs> things are. And for me, this is totally one that goes, I've had a lifetime of experiencing different churches and churches these days, well, let me rephrase, not just all churches, but a particular segment, a particular type of church feels like marketing. It feels like it's all there to earn my membership so that I become a donating member of the church. And because of my sensitivity and my generation's sensitivity to being sold something, 
I don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. Then throw in the culture of the expose and the debunking, and you have pastors that are just not helping and mm-hmm. stories of pastors that are not helping, no matter how frequent they actually are. And so you kind of, I'm presented with the option of like, well, I could throw myself into a church or a community that's pretty messy and kind of messed up. And frankly, I need to get my soul back after I leave on Sunday morning. Or I could go do something that feels tangible and effective and real. And I remember in, in college, I want to drop out and like go across the border and feel like the best thing I could do would be physically help people that are being assaulted in some way. Like yeah. that was, that was going to be it. And I think that's where I, I wrestle with that. Like it feels like it is the, that, that's where the agreement comes from. It, it feels like it's the best expression, the best way that I could possibly live. And I just remember, you know, we do live in a climate where in the last 10 years we have had books like the good news about injustice and the hole in our gospel. And these things that have pointed out like, we are meant to do something. There is a loving response to our life in God. Yes, we're partnering with Jesus, who is the restorer of all things. But, you know, sort of what you name in that article is, yeah, that works, but it does nothing to address the human heart, which is the true root of everybody's affliction. And that being the case, there's that troubling verse if it does a person nothing to gain the whole world and lose their soul like the gospel is as Paul calls it the power of God for salvation like the, yes. the gospel is how people are actually rescued and transformed right yeah but I I heard a millennial spokesman I don't need to name who it was but popular podcast website online guy and he was saying look he was trying to explain the justice movement to my generation he says look your gospel of personal piety and holiness did nothing to help the world. And you got so inwardly focused that you didn't turn outward to the the cause of the oppressed and the abused and the enslaved. Yes, like, I get it. And But I thought that that was a very unfair caricature of what we actually think the gospel is. And the example would be this, gang— the global sex trade would collapse in one month if every adult buying sex had a change of heart. The global sex trade will never be sufficiently suppressed while there are adults who provide a market for those services. Because of fallen humanity, because of broken, you know, political systems, you will not address this successfully without a massive change of heart among the people who provide the market for it. And that's where I think the brilliance of the gospel comes in. The gospel of all things on the planet has the ability to change human hearts right? It's called repentance or metanoia, right? I will take away your heart of stone and I will give you a heart that's tender to me, God says. It is actually focused on the heart. Justice, and now I'm going to wade right into it, justice is not the primary mission of Jesus Christ. It's not. And and this this was the embarrassment for centuries uh, of the New Testament apparent silence on slavery. And what I want to say is apparent silence, because you have, you know, heroes like William Wilberforce, who, because of their Christian faith, were the ones to eradicate 
the slave trade in England and in the Americas. But the argument is, oh, no, no, the New Testament is absolutely brilliant, knowing that we will stop the slave trade by changing human lives, by restoring human dignity, by bringing repentance to owners and traders and that sort of thing. So, it actually is the best possible game plan. In addition to that, I, I'm a little bit of tirade right now, but just let me, let me roll here. In addition to that, the burnout level of men and women who serve in justice causes is staggeringly high. A friend of mine runs a home for trafficked girls in Central America. The previous directors of that home have never made it more than one year. It's just, it's just tragedy and trauma and heartbreaking and overwhelming need. And you have to say no sometimes, and it's heartbreaking. And, and the fact is, like, justice as its own goal, justice is like, this is the gospel. This is what we're going to bring to the world. I, I want to say, not really. Not without some other critical parts of the gospel. Because of her income, because of his income, Oprah and Bill Gates will do more for human justice causes than your church ever will. So that can't be what distinguishes Christianity in the world. That can't be it. There's, no, there's absolutely no distinction, right? What distinguishes us is this unique thing called the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, and his ability to transform human lives. So I just wanted to put out for this, react to that. Like, that's a bomb. Yeah, I mean, I have several different reactions. One is the, I don't want to lose the power of it by needing to point out the the very intentional naming. What we're not saying is that it doesn't matter. Not at all. What we're not saying is that it's not a point. Like, it's just not the point, and it doesn't stand on its own, is what we're saying. Because I think of this, I've how many different stories have I heard over the years one particularly comes to mind that I think has been written about and I read somewhere. And it's this the story of a guy who wasn't a Christian and worked in a company and his boss was a phenomenal person, like just very loving, very kind, but just was like a really, seemed like a really good humanist. And eventually this guy, not the boss, but the the worker eventually becomes a Christian after like a long struggle. And, and then the, the boss finds out about this and is like, wow, that's amazing. I'm a Christian too. And the guy's response is, are you kidding me? Like you were actually the biggest hurdle for me becoming a Christian because I thought it was possible to be like a really good person without anything. You seem like you didn't need God. Mm. And because you were so good on, mm. on seemingly your own, I almost didn't make the jump. Like you not telling me did more harm. Mm. And that's where I think of the ways that justice movements that are truly good. Like you, you have this friend who's in Central America doing something that is justice oriented. And yet it's like with Jesus. And he is the first to last longer than a year because of the inner, like the, there are all these multiple layers. Exactly. I think of the ways that justice goes off the rails and becomes a problem when it's like, I'm thinking about 17 different movements that I am trying to help throughout the day from food to shopping to donating to this and that and the other thing. And like, maybe Jesus is sort of in one of them. And then we would get to the problem that Dan Allender once named of like, if you bring healing without Jesus, that's actually demonic. Like you're setting people free sort of into their, their eternal life without knowing. Well, here's, here's a very uncomfortable fact 
that illustrates what you're trying to say. That I, I hate this fact. The majority of women who are rescued from the sex trade return of their own volition. Let me say it again. The majority of women around the world who are rescued out of sex trading, trafficking, uh, violating circumstances and brought in, brought into an opportunity to a different direction of their life actually end up returning. If that doesn't say justice of itself is not sufficient, and part of the reason for that phenomenon is this, unless you heal the trauma done to the human soul, unless you heal and eradicate the evil ties that get formed between a prostitute and, and her pimp and, and, and the whole organizational structure there, she cannot actually get free. So what I want to come back to is the most transformative thing in the world is the kingdom of God. What Jesus was about was teaching people to live in the kingdom of God and accessing all of the healing and redemptive resources of the kingdom of God. And so if that's the plan, if that's the mission, then wouldn't we spend more of our time and effort bringing the full resources of the kingdom of God, which include justice, but also the healing of humanity and also the healing of the souls of those who are burning out at the front of justice movements. The kingdom of God can address all of that. I think the one thing that I want to add here, too, is there is the reality of love and risk in play here, too, where I think my generation has felt so disoriented and damaged by professing Christians who seem to not care about anything that's actually happening in the world, like yes. who really are Gnostics. Their, their soul and their body are totally separated. And they're like, no, 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 only spiritual needs. And all that matters is heavenly stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And I think we've been so appropriately offended by that of that's not Jesus, like, <laughs> he is the reinstated ruler of this world, and we're partnering with that. But there is the thing, however, as long as you are there, you don't have to risk, like, the step that in love would actually help your community, would actually help your friends. And I just know from my own experience of, like, time working with refugees, time working in world vision, time working in Latin America and permaculture, like, sort of those things— they're really easy in conversation, and they're really like, yes, I care, look at this. Like, But if they aren't the thing that is actually going to change the world, if they're not the thing that's actually going to affect the root and the root of even my own community and my city's issues, then like, it is profoundly unloving to stay in this place that is very safe of loving justice without actually addressing the reality of Jesus and his ability to change people. Yeah, we, we have to be honest about two things here to wrap up this agreement. The, the first is the justice movement is very, 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 very cool. It's just cool. Like, you want to seem like a really good person in this culture right now? You want to seem non-offensive and caring and kind and integrous? You can talk about your justice passions and causes and the things that you're doing. And by the way, just before people start throwing stones here, I actually invest a lot of money in justice causes. So, 
you can come look at my tax returns and and see that I care about this stuff, okay? I'm talking about it from the inside. I only wear clothing from organic llamas that are free range <laughs> in the Alps. <laughs> but exactly. it's because it's true. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so let's just be honest, gang. Come on. Let's just be honest. It's easier to tell someone in this culture about your justice, you know, concerns and involvement than it is to tell them about Jesus Christ. So let's just let's just be honest, gang. Come on. Just like it's easy to hide in doubt, it's easy to hide in justice if we're honest. The second point I want to make is, like I was saying about Oprah and Bill Gates, who uh, who do phenomenal giving in this arena, they will outgive the church. They just they have the economic resources to do it. What do you have that they don't have? Justice is in. Justice is hip. Good grief. Every single product I buy these days talks about their justice movement. My cereal talks about its justice crusades. Honestly, I opened the box of my blueberries the other morning, and the inside of my blueberry carton was talking about what their company is doing for justice. So that is not going to distinguish Christianity in this world right now. It's in. It's the cause du jour. You have something to offer the world that no one else does. You have Christ crucified and raised from the dead. You have an intimate personal relationship with the living God that restores human souls, lives, families, communities. Let's just make sure we are offering that in at least equal portion to the other things we're doing. Totally. One last piece. And you guys see why this is a two-parter because we just go. (laughs) When I was uh, attending the Christian college that I was at, I, I took a course on missions. And, and one of the things they were talking about was how, if you look at Jesus's example, people need to eat before they can hear him talk often. Mm-hmm. And so there was this, this push away from just going and offering and trying to convert and being like, people are hungry. You need to feed them. Absolutely. And then it became just about feeding them. Yep. So it's not just go tell them about Jesus and it's not just go give them some fish. Like there's, uh, anyway. Well, look at the YMCA, gang. Did, do you know what those letters stand for? You know what the acronym is? It's the young, dance. Everybody knows it. It just stands for itself. America. It is the Young Men's Christian Association. The YMCA was founded at the turn of the previous century to help young people that were forced into the cities by the Industrial Revolution find a safe place for lodging and meals, and Christian support, okay? It was a Christian mission through and through. It was a justice Christian mission through and through. And now, it's where you go to work out. Well, now it's where I I give them $40 and never go to like cancel my membership. (laughs) Okay, Blaine, get us back on track. I don't know that I want to because the next one's the doozy. So, now that we've gone this far. Can we touch the next one like a hot potato? Just touch it and then run. I (laughs) know. My, I think we're in having some technical difficulties here, folks. We're uh, going to have to skip this. <laughs> so the next one oh. is very complex and deeply embedded, and it expresses itself in so many ways that trying to get this one feels like playing a game of whack-a-mole. And I just want to acknowledge, like, we can't get all the moles at one time, so... This is one that requires some talking through, and this is someone that just, again, goes, it will do you an enormous good to understand what it means to be a human being with an identity. But getting there has become really difficult. Nonetheless, it's worth jumping into. Dad, the fourth one you wrote about was 
that God had nothing really in mind for human nature. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a doozy because it quickly gets us into the gender conversation, but I don't think the conversation starts there. And I don't think it's actually mostly about that. You really have to back up for a moment and just start with, again, we're talking about people who are wanting to take the teachings of Jesus Christ seriously. That is the subset that kind of enters into our listening audience and our conversation here because we have a starting point. We have a starting point. We, we, have, we have the scriptures and we have phenomenal things said about human beings in there, things that would actually transform the world if the world would believe them. You are a son or daughter of a living God. Your life has intrinsic value and worth because of that. Your value and your worth, the sanctity of your actual life, and therefore the protection of your life is grounded in something other than the current political regime. And what people group happens to be in charge of the guns at the moment, okay? Like the Imago Dei, are you kidding me? Like if we could bring this to the world, that human beings have this exquisite value and place in the world because we are made in the image of God. And that's not said of any other form of life. I love the forests, I love the ocean, but it is only of human beings. that It said, you bear the image of the living God. Yeah, can I just, I just want to contrast that with our moment and just provide a couple examples of sort of what we think about human nature. The first one is we've been sharing around this Diet Coke commercial that came on during the Olympics. And, you know, you have this gal at the store, grab a Coke, take a sip, and what she walks through is just sort of an expose on our view of personhood where she just goes, like, I'm going to drink a Diet Coke because I want to. Life is short. Do you want to live in a yurt? Live in a yurt. You want to run a marathon? Run a marathon. Be yourself. And then this classic line of, be yourself, whatever that is. And if you want to have a Coke, drink a Coke. And there's be just yourself, this, whatever, whatever that, that is. Yurt it up. If you want to run a marathon, I mean, that sounds super hard, but okay. I mean, just do you, whatever that is. And if That's it. So let's react right. to that. So it just do you, just whatever that is. And okay, this is not just co-commercials. You know, I did see, I'm just going to confess right now, the third Kung Fu Panda movie. I just, ha you know, I needed to take the journey because I'd seen the first two. But you just sort of watch the cultural progression and the messaging of these films. And the third one, the panda is now the master. You know, he started off as he's the nobody who becomes the great warrior. And now in this last one, he's the great warrior who's transitioning into needing to teach. And what he needs to learn about teaching is that you aren't trying to make people like you. You're trying to make them like them, the best them. And what it is is there's no shared thing that they are lining up to. There is only a sort of multiplicity of just a multitude of different beings with a totally distinct nature, and it's up to them to discern what that is and be it. Right. Which is actually totally hopeless. And guys, we, gals, we just have to point out, like, this is actually totally contrary to human desire and human nature. I had a friend, <laughs> bless you, David, 
who sent me a book for Christmas called The Horse, the Wheel, and Language. The horse? The horse. Thank you. Yeah, the horse, the wheel, and language. And it is this very kind of arcane, highly specialized field of study that's trying to use archaeology along with dead language studies to try and get back to who were the original Europeans and where did we come from? Indo-Europeans. Indo-Europeans, thank you. Where did we come from is the ultimate quest. And, And it comes down to finding who had the horses, who were able to cross the Eurasian steppe, what was their language, how can we verify that? And the final bit of the study is you've got to get molars, horse teeth, molars that show a certain kind of bit wear in them. So they're going to have these little micro indentations. And that will show us, these were the first people group to actually domesticate horses and ride them. That's what enabled them, yada, yada, yada. What's fascinating to me is the longing, the human longing for who am I, where do I come from? What does it mean to be me? And so Stacy and I bought into the recent saliva genetic testing craze. Yeah, I'm super curious for my own sake. Yeah, right. Vicariously through you guys. Yeah, yeah. So this is a thing now that you can you can spit into this little vial and you pay, you know, I, I don't know, it's it's a lot of money, uh, less than a hundred, but more than fifty to send smaller your, than a bread box. <laughs> the, the, to send your spit into this lab somewhere, and they're going to come back and tell you your genetic makeup. You are, you know, 35% uh, Scandinavian, you are 42%, you know, yada, yada, and you are 7% pirate, you know. and, and Awesome. Uh, Probably. But more. what cracks me up is, gang, do you see the, the, over the centuries, the ache, the longing, the need of human beings to know, where do I come from? Who am I? and more deeply into the sociological and philosophical, what does it mean to be human? What does that mean? What is human? What is the good human being? What is the good human life? Like that, those are core questions. And we have this thing called the Imago Day. We have this starting place that's just exquisite and incredible. And if you believe that... Now we're getting into the danger zone. I can feel a fire heating up. If you believe that there is a design to human beings that was intended by God, that has implications to it. And one of the implications is we are not all utterly malleable, right? We, we are not all indiscretionately available to redefining humanity on and on and on and on. There, there is an intention, there's design, there's a purpose, there is something called human nature. It's actually a thing, right? Well, I think we've said all we can be said about that. <laughs> <laughs> is there a human nature? Is there a human design? Are, are, is, are human beings more like flour? That There's kind of an essential ingredient, but any chef can choose to add other ingredients to it and shape it into croissants, pizza dough, donuts, you know, pita bread, crackers, you know, just a, a whole sort of variety 
of expressions of human nature, or is there a design? And again, if you are operating from a belief in Scripture as a reliable witness of the Word of God to us, you've got some things to contend with here. For example, Scripture is very, very clear that God's nature is unchanging, that He is who He is. He is so much who He is that He literally calls Himself, I am. That's how substantive his being is, okay? Now, you bear the image of the unchanging one. You bear the image of the I am. It's, it's what gives you dignity. It's what gives you value. It gives you worth. And as a son or daughter, oh my gosh, so much identity flows from that and security and relationship and all of these wonderful things that we can enjoy in a life with God. And there are implications. And I just want to point out, gang, why, oh, why, oh, why are we having to tiptoe around a conversation? Well, we'll tell you why. Because in this culture that is so filled with hatred, there are people that would love nothing more than to grab audio bits of a podcast and repurpose them and put them out there and say, hey, guess what? Ransomed Heart is blah, 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 you know. The hard laugh from that, which actually isn't that hard because it's, we've kind of followed these things through. They are all deeply related. Right. And so this, this final one is that there is nothing epic about my life, which, which feels, feels very true. And may even feel like we need to, we can even reduce it and make it not even that splashy. Like there is nothing meaningful about my life, not even epic. Like the great longing is to have your life have direction and meaning and purpose. And and for some, for there to be some reason. That is grounded in something outside of you. This is the core issue, okay? In the famous French existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre said that when we invent values, we have to admit at that point that life has no meaning because invented meaning is the ultimate non sequitur, right? Like if all we are are a group of random individuals creating individual meaning for our lives, then how, who are you to say that the person that chooses mm, to gotcha. binge watch, you know, old episodes of, of Baywatch how, why? Why is that less meaningful than the person that is down in Guatemala fighting for trafficked girls? Okay. And it's an absurd example, but the point being, I saved this one for last because I, I think the most damaging agreements are the ones that strip us of the meaning of our life. Because once you're stripped of that, then who cares? Right. Who the hell cares? Yeah. Right? I mean, it, it Medicaid, sabotage, self-destruct, what does it matter, right? Like, this is this is the millennial moment right here. What is the actual meaning of my life? And, and what is that grounded in? And again, Christianity has this extraordinary answers to these things. Well, I sure hope so, because if there isn't meaning, I use this example a lot— I, I would be driving very quickly and shooting wildly into the air and doing all the drugs and all the alcohol because what would the point be? Like, if there's not meaning, why are you bothering to 
binge watch anything. That's actually biblical, by the way. Yeah, Paul, right. Paul says, if there is no resurrection, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Right. We will be pitied most among all men. Binge it up. Yeah. Binge it up. Right. I like, though, that in framing the conversation of meaning, you do use this thing of, there's nothing epic in my story. There's no meaning in my story. Because it's fascinating that if you go to, like, sort of the foundation of Western philosophy and you get to Aristotle and you get to his early work of drama theory, the first thing that he actually had to establish, which for a long time was, like, duh, and then got rejected later for arbitrary reasons, was, okay, guys, so a story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that was actually one of his, like, remarkable observations that allowed him to do all these incredible things with art. You can build on that. You can build hugely on that. But it just has to go, like, it's this, okay, so what's the beginning? Where are we? What are we heading towards? And being oriented in that, all of a sudden, you have a structure that informs the quality of your actions. But without that, you really are in a void. And I chose Epic for a reason. Flannery O'Connor, famous uh, Southern Gothic writer, Christian Catholic believer, was, you know, her her characters are so over the top and just bizarre and in your face. She was asked why she did that. And she says, well, in an age like ours, you have to startle people to attention. My characters are like jack-o'-lanterns. They, they just arrest and startle you. So I used Epic for the same reason, that it's not just about meaning. Because the irony is, like, nobody thinks their life is epic, and it is only the epic worldview that is going to rescue you in this moment. Allow me one observation. Truth is lost. Beauty is lost. Meaning is lost. Love is lost. How more epic a moment in time do you want to get? The French philosopher Simone Vey said, what better time to live than when all is lost? I mean, to, to rally and to fight for meaning and beauty and truth and goodness is the extraordinary life in this moment. This is an epic moment. This is... This is uh, the Pelinor Fields, right? And Mordor is, looks like it's going to take down Minas Tirith. This is the climax of most great movies where it looks like it's over, gang. This is our moment in human history. And I think it is only the epic worldview and, and the magnitude of the scale and all that is at stake that gives us orientation and, and defines good and valuable lives and actions at this point. Yes, your life has meaning. Are you kidding me? You are a son or daughter of a living God born for such a time as this. See, I I love that, and I want to end there, but I'm not going to let it because if only it looked like the Battle of Pelennor Fields, if only my life was literally crawling up Mount Doom with the ring, because at least that story does have an end and does have some clarity to it. And sure, we can all say, well, for the characters in the story, it probably, you know, it was just as confusing for you when you want to go, bullshit! They weren't grocery shopping and then going to the zoo and wondering why their life didn't feel epic. It is hard to hold on to the vision of the epic. And only the epic will allow you. Only those very stories. Those very stories were written for our hour, by the way. 
there is a reason that they resonate with us. Because here's the, here's the irony. Can I just point out the irony of our moment? The millennial moment of utter meaninglessness and whatever, dude, you know, your coffee roasty beaning wearing buddy, you know, who's trying to just socially aware his way through life. At this very moment, what are the most popular films? We, we have been through so many Avenger films and X-Men and the Star Wars um, canon has just been opened up to include all kinds of other films and superhero movies, right? At this very moment, why the longing for that? Because the human soul needs orientation through story and through stories that are epic. The reason that it resonates in this very hour is because that is this very hour. I just want to tell our audience, like, okay, it sounds massive. It is. And it will be worth breaking each one individually. Break these agreements. It will be worth looking at and over and over. You know, we talked about there is a way that there is a particular form that an agreement takes to a person. Uh, You know, epic story, it might be simply that I'm not included in the epic story. Like you could look at the people around you Mm -hmm. who seem to have huge momentum in their life with God and go, yep, that guy, man, he is participating in the force of the kingdom. I'm sidelined. Like, there you go. Well, break that agreement. Break that one that you're not included in the epic story. Like, no, you're drawn in. Or, you know, find in thinking about these and in realizing what they, recognizing what they stir in your heart the form of the agreement in your own life will become visible, it will do you great good to break it. And it will do you great good to affirm and proclaim the opposite because that will begin to clarify your vision. We meant restoration by all of this, friends. We, we, we're not trying to intentionally be provocative. We actually don't take a lot of joy in that. We don't look for, you know, to toss explosives into conversations. We brought these up because we think if you do that very thing, it will do you a great good. We hope it's been helpful. We hope that it's both shed some light on um, the millennials in your world. To find out more about the Incense podcast, you can open up the Ransom Heart app because it's hosted within there, or you can head over to ansonsmagazine.com, which is where you'll also encounter the quarterly online print that we put out. There's also films there and a link to the Ansons podcast, which really is a conversation that anybody would benefit from, though we do talk about particular issues facing the generation today. None of us are immune for these agreements, really. Agreements about meaning and purpose, gosh, uh, creep into all our lives. So you've been listening to the Ransomed Heart podcast in which we inserted the Anson's uh, podcast episodes on five agreements killing millennials with Sam and Blaine and Sean Eldridge. <laughs>